If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com 12-12. This is our number two of the World According to Zig podcast for this August 20th, 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. This being our number two, that usually means it's time for our guest of the week, and we're very excited about this week's guest. She is someone who I have admired for quite a while and have gotten to know a little bit through meetings of anti-Trumpers out of Washington, D.C., she is a conservative columnist for the Washington Post. Uh, she is Jennifer Rubin, and she joins us now. Nice to be here, John. Uh, Jennifer, a lot of things I want to talk to you about, uh, including some of the news this week. But I want to go back in time, because I think uh, the context for how this entire Trump phenomenon occurred, and specifically how the, the conservative news media has changed dramatically in the last few years, is important to understanding this story. And what I mean by that is I want to go back to 2012 for a minute. Because uh, I first came to be a fan of yours uh, during the 2012 election cycle when you were, I, I think it's fair to say, you, you were pretty supportive of Mitt Romney early on in the primary process. Is that a fair, fair assessment? I think that's a fair assessment, and uh, I think he's actually, in retrospect, been proved correct on a lot of things. So um, tough election to win, but uh, I think he was an honorable man, and came actually closer than people remember. Remember, uh, John McCain lost by about seven points, and Mitt Romney narrowed that to about three points in 2012. Right. But the important part to me in understanding the context of Trump in that 2012 primary situation is people forget, it's funny that you say they forget how close Romney came to beating Obama, but people also forget how close Romney came to not winning the Republican nomination. There were some pretty shaky moments, and you were a stalwart on his behalf, and you know who really helped give you a, a, a voice box, if you will, a platform, was none other than Matt Drudge. And Matt Drudge used to link to you fairly consistently during that time period because it was clear that Drudge was also on the Mitt Romney uh, train during that primary and really, in my opinion, helped him sustain himself through some some stormy periods. Do you remember it that way? 
I don't think uh, I had as many links as I would have liked. Um, there were a few, but um, I think they were actually kind of far and few between. But uh, I appreciate them. I appreciate all the links. No, but, my, but the point, though, is you remember that Matt clearly was not anti-Romney and, in fact, may have been pro-Romney during that time period. Is a- absolutely. And he was very close to one of Romney's top advisors. So you're exactly right. Yeah, I think he was, um, if not rooting for him, at least helpful. And Romney often... Uh, had things leaked or had things uh, previewed uh, through Drudge. Right. And so my point here is that when I look back on how Romney was able to withstand the storm, uh, you know, the New Gingrich storm, the Rick Santorum storm, what have you, all the, 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 the things that could have theoretically gone against him during the primary process in 2012, in my view, it's always going to be Matt Drudge and Jennifer Rubin who helped uh, save the day with regard to the conservative media and and brought sanity to the process. Now let's fast forward to 2016. (laughs) And the conservative media was very, very different. You didn't change, but everybody else, specifically Matt Drudge, did. Do you agree with that assessment? John, I could kiss you if you were not in a different room. Thank you. Um, I get this constantly. What happened to you, Jennifer? I used to hate you or I used to love you, and you've changed. I feel, John, as if I've stayed in exactly the same place I have always been. And uh, you're right. There was this enormous transformation. I would call it a hostile takeover. Um, But it had been building for some time, and many of the voices, many of the positions that you saw that were infatuated with someone like Newt Gingrich or even with um, more, uh, shall we say, mainstream candidates um, like, uh, you know, um, not uh, necessarily uh, our, uh, the, the Pizza King, but... Um, Herman Cain, yes. Herman Cain, not necessarily Herman Cain, but, you know, other candidates who are um, a bit more, um, like I said, mainstream, more respectable. Those voices um, previewed this white grievance, white resentment agenda, and that continue to build and to build and echo through the Fox um, echo chamber. And uh, that eventually seized the day in 2016. It was a regrettable trend that didn't begin in 2016, but certainly Trump used it to great effect. Do you have a theory? You said you saw this building. So does that mean that you weren't that surprised that it happened or, or were you? Um, I think we were surprised that it worked. I don't think um, many of us were surprised that it was out there because this is the um, same themes that we saw that Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity had been flagging for forever. Um, What was different is that they finally found a candidate who was a celebrity who could take those uh, if you want to call them ideas, more like a disposition, um, the sense of anger and grievance and disregard for facts and the evidence. They finally found someone who was their perfect match. And you did have this perfect storm between Steve Bannon, the audience that Fox had built up, and then Donald Trump, who, of course, was the really the prime mover behind uh, a lot of the birtherism. So I think it was... Um, only unexpected or surprising in that all those things came together at a time when the Democrats obviously nominated the worst possible candidate they could have had for a change election, and the Republicans had 17 or so candidates who essentially knocked one another out so that Trump was able to get the nomination. How much of this phenomenon that we both agree occurred do you attribute 
to uh, philosophical issues and how much of it to business slash economic issues. And uh, for instance, you know, since we've already mentioned Matt Drudge, uh, I believe that Matt Drudge is a capitalist uh, among everything else and, and, a, and a guy who loves chaos, loves the narrative, and of course he loves traffic, and that he, he sold out to Trump because Trump gave him all of that, and it really had nothing to do with the, the po- populism or white nationalism or whatever the heck you want to call Trump's philosophy. Where do you stand on that? I think it's always a combination. I think there are people who are predisposed not only to get the money, but to have access, to be in the know, to be in the circle. And I think you've seen a large amount of that, and that's just normal careerism and opportunism that you see in politics all the time. Surely there is a money element. Um, But I think um, there also are people out there, and maybe there are some in the media who were leading them, and maybe those people are just terribly cynical, but certainly there was this sentiment out there that white working class people became convinced, largely through conservative media, that their problems were not because of globalization, not because of gains in technology, not because of the knowledge revolution, but because of foreigners, either foreigners who were foreigners or foreigners who came here. And that uh, sort of blinding grievance meshed with a sense that somehow Christianity was under siege, really gave these people an axe to grind. And along comes Donald Trump, who, of course, is no Christian himself. Um, There's not a Christian principle he hasn't violated twice. Um, But he came along, he knew how to use that. Remember, Donald Trump was never anti-immigration. He was, used to be in favor of immigration. Um, but he saw this, he saw an opportunity, and pretty soon he figured out, wow, I've got a formula. And that is what, um, in the bright light of the campaign, with a lot of help from the mainstream media, which put him on constantly, as you remember, in the 2016 primary, um, helped lift him. So I think these things are always sort of overdetermined. There are people who are there for the economics, there are people who are there for the power, there are people who are true believers, and there's always a mixture of these people that comes around a political candidate, and if that candidate succeeds, then the president. But you, Jennifer, you did not ever come close to jumping on this uh, train like almost every other conservative uh, commentator did. I'm curious, from your own perspective, was there a price to be paid for that? For instance, your stories of the Washington Post, did, did you not get as much traffic as you might have had you decided to become a pro-Trump? Certainly you didn't get as many drudge links. In, yeah, to, well, to, there you go. I mean, um, you know, it's funny. Did I pay a price? Um, I, I suppose in some sense in that, listen, I've lost friendships over this. I've lost relationships. Um, I uh, don't attend and speak at uh, very conservative gatherings anymore. Um, so were there things that were lost? Yes. But I had no choice. There's no way um, in this universe that I possibly could have betrayed my principles, my sense of right and wrong, my sense of... Uh, America to support this guy. Um, I I could not even dream of doing it. So it wasn't as if I said to myself, I'll be brave. I'll go out there and do X, Y, and Z, and maybe it'll work out for me in the long run. It was just I had to do it. So it wasn't really a concern for me one way or the other. Um, And as you well know, John, because you're one of them, there have been a lonely band of us, um, certainly in the minority in the conservative movement. And, And I wonder if you feel this way as well. 
The, th- the only thing that I'm really shocked about is how many people sold out, that you have so many people who are willing to capitulate, willing to throw over whatever principles, values they ascribe to and join this uh, really cult. Um, and that has surprised me and bitterly disappointed me in some, in some respects. And I'm speaking about people in the media as well as people, obviously, in elected office um, at the national level. So it's, um, I think that was, perhaps I was naive. I actually thought more people had principles and had um, real beliefs. But, you know, it's politics. Uh, not everyone does. Well, to answer your question, I, I, the media aspect of this did not surprise me. In fact, uh, I had written a book proposal in 2011 called A Business Not a Cause, where, right. where I, the premise of the book was predicting that the conservative media w- would basically take a dive for Barack Obama's re-election because he was good for their business. Right. Uh, um, I'm not a celebrity, so no one bought the book, but I think it, I was uh, vindicated uh, yes. in spades yeah. in 2016. And, and by the way, that's part of why your role in 2012 I really stuck with me and I think was really important. You and, and Matt Drudge, you know, Drudge, I think, was, was kind of the glue that held the Romney Republican uh, primary campaign together. And then when Drudge flipped, see, I... The moment I knew, and, and I started to go apoplectic, the moment when Trump got in in those first couple of days, and I don't know if you recall this, but Drudge had been very sweet on Scott Walker, and he dumped Scott Walker uh, <laughs> immediately, and it was all Trump all the time, and I was like, uh-oh, now this is no longer a drill. Uh, this is the real deal. And, um, and, and, I, and I tried everything I could uh, but I even tried, you'll know, laugh at this, I tried with a, a Democratic friend, fr- congressman friend of mine early on, like a couple days in, to try to sabotage Trump from the other side because I knew he was a golfer and my friend's a golfer, and I wanted him to put out a letter threatening the USGA and the PGA with abandoning uh, their their um, golf course, their, their, their golf organizations, if they kept tournaments at Trump uh, golf courses because I figured that would be the one thing that Trump really cared about. I mean, this was a couple of days in. I saw the whole thing evolving because I knew not to trust the conservative media industrial complex. What did shock me, Jennifer, was the Ted Cruz's of the world, right, the, right. the Marco Rubio's of the world, the uh, Paul Ryan's of the world. For goodness' sake. Oh, Paul! I mean, it, Paul Ryan since the election has just been a complete joke. Oh my uh, God! It's it's incredibly depressing. And having known him quite well during the years when he was on the budget committee and then in the ways and means, I mean, this is a man who really did sell his soul to the devil. And um, I do wonder how he sleeps at night. Most of these people I don't have very much respect for. I will um, be very candid. Um, Most of these people are not serious thinkers. They're not really in it for the policy. But frankly, I always thought Paul Ryan was. And to see him so, you know, uh, compromise his views and so turn himself inside out for the sake of this guy really is uh, one of the most horrifying parts of this, I really must say. And um, I think you're right in that, um, you know, there are always people who, are, who will just follow whoever the winner is in the meeting elsewhere. But when you have people like that who attempted to bring a certain intellectual sophistication, want to be the guy with ideas, thought of him as a wonk, and suddenly he's Donald Trump's best friend. That was distressing, uh, and it remains so. And I do wonder, 
how these people are going to feel looking back on this in five years or ten years and whether they're really going to be proud of themselves or not. Well, I want to get to that, but I, I want to address something you've already said uh, that I thought bears uh, further inspection. You said you've lost friendships and relationships over uh, your Donald Trump position. Can you give us a little more insight as to why that's occurred? I think people take it very personally when you've identified um, in Donald Trump really um, personality traits and views that are an anathema and are um, really beneath contempt, and that you have gone out of your way, as I have, frankly, um, to point out um, that the people who are supporting him are enabling some very bad things. They're enabling white grievance, white nationalism. They're enabling a xenophobia. They're enabling a mindlessness in terms of our politics. Um, so does it surprise me that people got upset when I wrote those things? Probably not. Um, and, you know, frankly... Um, but losing I, friends? I mean, so have you, have you been the one that has broken off friendships because you couldn't believe they supported Trump, or was it been vice versa? I think it's largely been vice versa. Um, you know, there's certain people who probably don't talk politics with me, but remain, you know, obviously personal friends. Um, but in terms of collegial relations, um, you know, the... This has been strained, and this is no surprise. It's not particular to me. If you talk to, and I'm sure you do, John, other folks, they will relate the same tale, um, that they, this has been sort of a mind-altering, uh, life-altering experience for many of us. Right. And um, it does shift your worldview. It tends to have you reevaluate some of those relationships. Those people certainly reevaluate you. Um, but I do want to come back to something, and I don't want to overplay um, <laughs> my role or Drudge's role in 2012. Mitt Romney essentially won that nomination because he was the only one who looked any, any, in any measure like a presidential candidate. Remember right. the people that they were down to. Oh, I, so, I know. I, I, I yeah, get it. Everyone had their 15 minutes of fame. So whether I or anybody else you know, wrote positive things about him I think was beside the point. What was so shocking, I think, in 2016, that's why I go back to it, is the people who all got 15 minutes of fame, Donald Trump strung those 15 minutes of fame together and wound up with a nomination and the presidency. And I think that was the other thing that shocked me. I never thought Republicans would give their party to someone like this. You always think of Republicans as, you know, maybe the, the finicky neighbor or the the angry guy who tells you to get off your lawn but tells you to, you know, have your garbage covered. Um, these are people who are used to order, who are used to predictability. Right. They're, you know, that's what a conservative is. They're used to the status quo to a fault sometimes. And so when they were willing as a party to just throw it all overboard and join this clown who was really debasing many of the things that they had said they stood for, that's what was the surprise for me. And unlike you, and I will admit this, obviously, I, I never believed that the Republican Party, obviously, until we got into the primaries, was going to give their party to this guy. And well, they surely did. I will agree that, and I've already uh, implied this with regard to the Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio situation, I, I was surprised that there was never really a last-ditch, this-is-the-hill-we're-going-to-die-on mm -hmm. moment to, to, to stave off the coup. Because it was clear this was a coup, and everyone kept thinking, "All right, eventually there's going to be this this end fight, you know, whatever." Right. But there never was one. No one ever put up an end fight, no. and and uh, I guess it's because everyone fears dying so much 
uh, in media and in politics, because, you know, let's face it, these are very insecure people. And yeah. and if you lose your standing, uh, you cease to be a person to a lot, right. to a lot of these people. And, and you have to remember that these people never thought he was going to win. He didn't think he was going to win. And by the way, this is, you know, what happens when you think, oh, so-and-so will never win, or so-and-so is a clown, you don't have to bother opposing him. Um, Donald Trump, in large part, and people haven't really talked about this, got elected because people didn't expect him to get elected. So they threw away votes, or they didn't show up, or they kind of disregarded it. They never bought it. So had these people back then realized he was actually going to be president of the United States, maybe they would have come to the same behavior. But I think um, they had no clue what they were doing to the country, what they were doing to the party. They just assumed he was going to lose. They would go into the opposition and it was going to be the Clinton years all over again. And now they would be digging up dirt on Hillary Clinton and life would go on. Um, And that's not what happened. And they never had the nerve to get off the train. Jennifer, we've discussed how you've lost friends. I'm curious, especially at the Washington Post, which is obviously exceedingly liberal and has been very rough on on Trump, especially since his uh, election and and his inauguration. I'm curious, are there people at the Post that now have a strange new respect for Jennifer Rubin? (laughs) Well, I think my colleagues at the Post always sort of like me. So, um, but I will say this, and that is that I think in some ways it's been a revealing and reaffirming experience in that there are people of goodwill on both sides of the divide. And I think there are people, um, not very many of them, but some of us on the right, who really do care about democratic institutions, democratic norms, do care about principle, about um, an inclusive and uh, American society, which is the tale of round and round of immigrants coming through and becoming Americans. So I think there are people on the right, but what has, I think, pleased me is that there have been people on the left who say, you know, I don't agree with anything Bill Crystal has to say on economics, or I don't agree with anything that Max Boot has to say on Afghanistan. But you know what? I give them credit. They're right. We do need to stand up and defend American values. So I joke with James Fallows from Atlantic. I look forward, James, to the day when I can go back and you and I hate one another again. (laughs) I really do. But right now, it's an all-hands-on-deck. And I think what I've experienced is um, a real sense of patriotism, a real willingness to put um, partisan differences aside. Um, Compared to what we're facing now, the top marginal tax rate, the, what are, exactly our policy is vis-a-vis China, pale in comparison to the magnitude of the threat that Donald Trump conveys. And this is, I think, part of what um, has disturbed me so about the Republican Party. Um, for such little petty things, they would throw away democratic institutions and really a, one of the nation's great parties and the party of Lincoln. Um, really, it was worth it to you so you could get what you thought you were going to get, tax reform. 28% top marginal rate is really worth it to have Donald Trump. And they still exhibit this. I mean, how long are they going to live off <laughs> Neil Gorsuch? Um, there will be other Supreme Court seats that open up, and they will be filled by other presidents. It, it's sort of the um, the pettiness, the littleness of it all. Well, we had to support him because we wanted to get rid of Obamacare. Well, they didn't get rid of Obamacare. And by the way, in the great scheme of things, on one hand, you have the United States democracy. And on the other hand, you have 
sort of a hodgepodge of policy um, positions. And um, I think the lack of perspective, the inability to appreciate the gravity of the moment and the serious stakes um, really has been eye-opening. Um, and, you know, you've got to say to these people, first of all, you didn't get what you wanted. And secondly, really, you'd give up all of that. You give up American values. You give up an independent judiciary. You give up racial and religious inclusiveness just to get a tax bill you like? Really? So that has been distressing in the extreme. Last question on the, the media angle, and then I want to get to some more specifics about Trump and the, and the news of this week. But um, you and I are both referred to as never Trumpers or right. what have you. And, uh, you know, I, I'm starting to see this uh, online now that it's clear that the Trump presidency is going to be a disaster. And I think even a, a, even semi-rational people are starting to who right. are supporting him are starting to realize this. And so they're looking for a scapegoat. And I'm starting to see a, a narrative of two things. One, it's our fault right. th- that uh, he's not going to succeed. Or, or two, somehow we're the ones who made the cynical career decision right. to, to oppose him. And I'm like, that is crazy because one, this was a, a principal stand, but two, I'm convinced Jennifer that in the end, we won't, we won't even get a handshake for being right about this. We will actually get more blame than accolades, uh, the so-called never Trumpers when it's clear that we were in fact, right, that this was a cancer on the party. Am I right about that? Absolutely. I, it, this is just mindlessness and it shows how unwilling they are to take responsibility for their own choices. Listen, these people lifted Donald Trump, the most noxious human being ever to win the presidency, someone who, if allowed to, would really destroy democratic institutions and norms. And they backed him, they supported him, they lifted him to office, they continued to defend him. And rather than look at themselves in the mirror and say, why did I do this? Where did I go wrong? They'd love to blame you or me or whoever. Um, or if, Jennifer, <laughs> if we had just gone along, he would have been able to make it work. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's just bizarre. And you have to remember that two days after the election, they were all hopping down, oh, you never Trumpers are going to be so sorry you took that position. What an asinine thing to do. You're going to be out in you know, the wilderness. And as you said, it never bothered me one way or the other. And it doesn't bother me whether people say, um, well, aren't you proud you were right all along? It wouldn't have made any difference whatsoever. Um, you know, I live in, an, in a very fortunate spot where I'm allowed to write what I want and say what I want. Um, and I think every day that uh, I work where I do. And uh, I could never have done any differently. Um, as you would have, John, and you've paid a, a great price as well. Um, and you look at people like Charlie Sykes, um, who had a um, very comfortable position within the right uh, talk show universe, um, and now he doesn't. But I know Charlie, and I know he wouldn't have done anything differently. Yeah, there, there are not too many of us, and we're, we're not going to get anything out of this, I can assure you. There's not, <laughs> um, if anything, uh, we'll just get more blame. Because uh, people, it is far easier to dupe people than to convince them they have been duped. And if you do convince uh, them that they have been duped, you're actually the bad guy. Uh, and that's an unfortunate uh, human reality. Now, absolutely. now as far as um, this week, and the craziness never stops, every week seems to be like a year uh, with regard to news, I think you you have been very, very, very understandably critical of President Trump and the response to Charlottesville. 
you and I might differ slightly, though, and I'm this one. Of, I'm curious as to to get your reaction about this. Are you not at all concerned? And I and I don't pretend because obviously I don't like Trump, and I don't believe this is why he's doing this. But are you not at all concerned that the reaction to all of this has negative free speech implications? Does that not worry you at all? It always worries me because, uh, in fact, I was on a program with someone who was saying, well, the problem was that the neo-Nazis should have been denied the permits in Charlottesville. No, they shouldn't have been. Um, Because, yes, um, you know, it it does concern me whenever people are beginning to restrict uh, free speech. But they have to understand that it is not a violation of free speech to criticize right. those who are making heinous comments. It is not a violation of, their, of free speech for us to socially, intellectually, politically ostracize them. You don't sure. get a free pass. That's not what the sure. First Amendment is, is about. True. So um, I do worry. Um, I also agree because the Democrats are so lame at this that they invariably get themselves sidetracked in ways that are oh, not yeah. helpful to themselves. Oh, or they, they have blown the reaction to this horrendously. So, I mean, I, listen, um, God love them, um, but um, they've not always been wise about this either. Um, so many things uh, bother me, but I think one of the lessons of the Trump era has been priorities, priorities, priorities. Um, the biggest problem right now is not the anti-fascist loonies on the left. Um, we'll worry about them when they get to be a more substantial problem. The problem is that the far right, the neo-Nazis, the white nationals, have someone in the White House who is sympathetic to their cause. That's the great challenge you, of you, you believe, Jennifer, that Trump is a racist, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. He, he has been from day one, from the days when he used to exclude African Americans from his apartment to the days that he went after the Central Park Five with a fury, even after they were exonerated by DNA evidence. And he, I think, has always had this mindset. I think he is a very crude thinker in many senses of the word. And one way he thinks about the the world is simply to put someone into a slot. And he does it by race. He does it by gender. And I think that's the way he's always operated. Um, He's a crude guy from... Queens, and he always will be. You could take the guy out of Queens, but you can't take the Queens out of the guy. And uh, I firmly believe it. And I think once he saw that it worked and that he got all of this positive reinforcement for going after immigrants and um, particularly Hispanics, um, he just couldn't get enough of it. Um, And he is absolutely slavishly in need of personal reinforcement, personal approval. And you put those two things together, and it's... uh, been really, really horrible. I, I will agree that there's certainly evidence that backs up what you're saying. In fact, I, I'm amazed that his past statements about genetics yes. uh, have not gotten more play, uh, considering you know how much the media is is very willing to go after him on almost everything. He's kind of gotten a pass on that. I, I'm not willing to go quite as far as you because I think I I think he's more of a political actor, and he and, and this is his base, and he's massaging his base, but. Right. Um, but maybe you're right. I, I'm, I'm open-minded on that. I am curious, Jennifer, as as a person who is Jewish. One of the things that's confused me. I'm not Jewish, although a lot of people think Ziegler is. Um, I, I'm I'm a little confused by how in this week now all of a sudden Nazi and Confederate are somehow equated. Can you help me under? How did that happen? And as a Jewish person, are you at all weirded out by that, or doesn't it bother you? Um, I think. 
part of what has happened is the neo-Nazis themselves have adopted the Confederacy. Um, their march um, had nothing to do with taking down a Robert E. Lee statue or keeping it up. They used that as a rallying point, and it's the neo-Nazis and the white nationalists who actually um, – unlike the people who uh, want to take them down, understand that these were symbols of white dominance that were put up in Jim Crow and in the 1950s and 60s, and they want to use that. So I think it's the white nationalist groups who have adopted the Confederacy as a symbol of, um, you know, sort of the lost cause. Those guys had it right, my word. Um, And that's why you've seen... um, them throw in. They were the ones who were carrying both Nazi flags and Confederate flags, and that's why you've seen these two things uh, come together. Even if you did not have the Nazis out there and the white nationalists, um, I think we have a separate problem which has really come to light in the South, and that is that we really had a complete misteaching of history um, for a good part of the country. And my gosh, those Southerners actually pulled it off. They created this lost cause myth. And so you have Southerners who think of themselves as um, modern people who certainly are um, not racist in their everyday behavior, and they kind of bought into this idea that the South was noble and Robert E. Lee was some kind of hero. Um, And the whole scam worked, and it was a scam. So I think um, two things are going on simultaneously. One is the Nazis have adopted the Confederacy as a symbol and as a way of rallying whites uh, in the South. And secondly, we've gotten a real reminder that a lot of people in the South really do see this as the lost cause. And remember, for decades in the South, they did not celebrate July 4th because that was the day that Vicksburg fell. Um, And we make light of this, and we think, oh, that's kind of silly or, you know, not anymore. But there has been this deep affinity, and I think it takes um, a lot of certainly more mature and rational conversation we're having now to have a dialogue about really what the Confederacy was about, um, what they were trying to accomplish. And, um, you know, I've always thought it peculiar in a way. Uh, I would love to ask one of these individuals who really wants to keep Robert E. Lee up, why didn't you build statues to Grant and Lincoln? You love the Civil War. The Civil War is fought. Don't you take yourself as the natural successor from the people who won? Why are you celebrating the losers? And the answer is they have this... Uh, ethnic and land-based affinity for these people. Um, But really, if you think of the Civil War as a turning point in our history, as monumental history, why is it that they keep celebrating the South and the losing side? Um, And that is that they still identify at some basic level with that, and that's very disturbing. And I think um, we haven't really come to terms with that, and we haven't come to terms with really period of time in which these statues were built during the Jim Crow era and then in the 50s and 60s in opposition to the civil rights movement. So I think those two, that's a very long way of saying, I think it's those two things that have come together simultaneously, and that's why you see this conflagration of the two things. Well, politically, I I predicted early on in this, uh, the chaos of this week, that this was not going to hurt Trump anywhere near what the media was hoping for or predicting and the early evidence, I think, backs me up on this. In fact, I think he's actually been helped, as bizarre as it is, 
uh, among some of his base. Uh, the, the the polling that we've seen so far uh, backs that up. And so if if you take the theory that Trump's goal here is survival, and the key to his survival is maintaining his base, didn't he win this week? No, I disagree with that. I think um, whatever the polls are going to flesh out, um, you see in these latest battleground state polls in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, you see in the national polls, that his base, although very, very strong, is getting smaller and smaller as a piece of the pie. So, yes, um, he's down to the true believers, and they really, really, really believe, but you can't win elections and you can't maintain a presidency based upon 25 to 30 percent of the population. But actually, in Trump's case, you can, because Republicans will never abandon him as long as he has the cult, which if he forces them to abandon Republicans, they will get slaughtered in 2018. And that brings us to the second point, which is something else did happen, and that is um, he lost the business community this week. Um, He lost um, social respectability this week, as you see people who don't want to have events at his you know, uh, event at his uh, facilities. You see people like Bob Corker and Ben Sass, who wrote a mm. magnificent piece on Facebook, which right. got very little attention because I think everything else has been on television, and that's kind of where the media right. focuses. Um, but I think he now has generated an entire discussion, if you saw sort of the Sunday shows today, about whether he is mentally fit, whether he is unfit for the presidency. You never had people like Tim Scott having that discussion with us, saying he is morally compromised. I mean, Oh no, that's I, a problem. No, Jen, Jennifer, problem. Jennifer, long term, I, I don't think he's been helped by this week. Right. But but in the short run, I don't think that there's I don't I don't see the blood in the water yet that uh, a lot of people would like to believe is there. And I guess, you know, since we're running out of time here, I guess that's kind of where I want to go with where where do you see all of this ending? Because, uh, I mean, everyone has a different opinion on. Will he resign? Will he not run for re-election? Will he run for re-election and lose? Where, where, at this point, as of today, August 20th, 2017, where do you see this headed? Um, I think that the definitive end point is 2020. I do not think there is any way he's going to win a second term, and I would sincerely doubt he would run um, for a second term and risk losing. He will declare that he has accomplished more in four years than any other president did in eight years um, and go home. I also think there's a very strong possibility he's not going to make it that far. Um, And I do think the House is going to flip. I think he will be impeached after Mm -hmm. uh, the 2018 midterms. And then we'll see what Robert Mueller comes up with. And I never thought that he would lose the Senate or a substantial number of Republicans. But depending upon what's in there and really how badly he's screwed up by that time, you may find a significant number of Republicans who are willing to really kick him overboard at that point. Now, I think there is one other scenario, and I always ask people to kind of keep this in mind because there are effective things that Republicans um, and Democrats could be doing. Donald Trump never had to choose, really, between his business, his money, and the presidency. He got away with not releasing his taxes. He got away with mm-hmm. keeping all of his businesses. If he is ever really forced to make that choice, I have no doubt in my mind he will take his businesses. So, for example, if Congress were to subpoena his tax reform, his tax returns, or to pass legislation over a veto-proof majority, and he was then required to give it up, he could wind up in a standoff where he has no choice but to 
say the presidency or my money. You know, it's like the old Jack Benny joke, your money right. or your life. I'm right. thinking, I'm thinking. Um, and um, I think that remains um, one lever, one uh, way of pressuring him and encouraging him to um, to take his money and go back to Queens is to uh, whether it's in the emoluments area, the conflict of interest area, the tax return area, demands for documents, demands for testimony under oath, that um, he may be forced to make that choice. And if he is, that's, I think, frankly, the easiest way to get rid of him. Because as you know, even if Republicans break with him, to get two-thirds of the Senate is right. nearly impossible. It's never been done. Um so um, I, I think there are some scenarios. I don't think um, he's going to make it past 2020. I certainly hope we don't have to wait till 2020. And I think um, regardless of how his you know, base, which I do think is shrinking overall, regards him, I think this was a little bit of a tipping point for regular Republicans. And you have people who have not been publicly uh, admonishing and publicly scolding him um, speaking up. You have... James Murdoch, um, the right. heir apparent of Fox. Well, who, no, if, he, if Fox pulls the plug, he's in big trouble. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. James Murdoch does hold a, a key there because, uh, uh, you know, if, if uh, he tells Sean Hannity, knock it off, uh, Sean Hannity will probably knock it off. <laughs> and right. and, and uh, that will change everything. Uh, one, I just want, we could talk forever about this, but one caveat, I do think uh, Trump wins re-election in a three-person race. I think if if and I think that the possibility exists that because of how fragmented we are that we do get three major candidates in 2020 and uh, I think th- Trump would still be dangerous in a in a three person race. But um, a last question for you, Jennifer, since you mentioned Mueller and you work for the Washington Post, and I realize you're on the opinion side, and you know that's not the same as the news side. But obviously, the Post has been uh, very um, big into the Russian story. Is there any sense that you get? Uh, from the people at the post there, how confident those working on on the Russia story are that it's not fake news? I don't have any more insight into this than you do or that any other well-informed American. So I don't get some (laughs) secret email or a wink, wink, nod, nod. But listen, Robert Mueller has 16 lawyers of an extremely high caliber. He has a grand jury. He is going after not only the underlying collusion, but the potential for obstruction of justice. Um, He has witnesses who he is squeezing, like Paul Manafort, who are not going to go to jail for Donald Trump. So I think at the end of the day, um, there will be things. It for better or for worse, when special prosecutors get involved, as you know from past experience, very rarely do they come up dry. Um, And um, there will be, I think, findings. I think the obstruction of justice, frankly, is plain for all of us to see um, how he constructs that and what other information he uh, is able to pull out of other people in the White House um, remains to be seen. As far as the Russia story, we don't know uh, how closely this comes. Frankly, a meeting in Trump Tower attended by his right. son, his son-in-law, and his campaign manager is pretty, pretty damning stuff. Um, right. For people who remember, we're saying, we never had any contact with the Russians whatsoever. I mean, that's right. mind-boggling. Right. Um, and as you see this, um, you know, I think it's entirely possible that the Russians were all over them, and in the desperation 
because they thought they were going to be losing, that they were getting help from anyone and everyone, that there was cooperation. And let's remember, the issue of collusion has already been proven. The only question is whether he privately colluded. He publicly colluded with the Russians. Right. He invited them to to uh, hack into the Democrats and into John Podesta. Um, he very openly um, was complimentary of um, Putin and stuck to a pro-Putin line. They took out a plank from the Republican National Committee uh, platform on Ukraine. He was publicly colluding. The question now is, was, was he doing things in private um, that evidence that he was aware that the hacking was going on, and he made use of it. And remember, the final days of the campaign, what was it, 134 times he brought up right. um, the WikiLeaks? Right. He, of course he was in collaboration. Um, and the only question is, um, did that happen in ways within the campaign that raise greater legal issues? Um, and uh, we also have, of course, a separate stream of his finances, which could do a whole program on, and that is once Mueller gets into his finances, this is a guy who took loans from all sorts of people. This is a guy who had casinos, which are the, I won't make an allegation about his casinos, but casinos in general are thought to be uh, institutions, uh, businesses that are very easy to launder money through. Um, I do not think that a developer with his set of principles or nonsense of principles is going to come clean in any examination of his financial life. So I think um, even apart from the presidency, he has legal peril with regard to his own businesses and his own finances. And so you put that all together and no, it's not fake news. There really is stuff there. And um, I think um, the question is how much, how damning it is when it's laid out for us. Um, but I will say this. If there's something there, there is no way it is going to be concealed. Robert Mueller is too good. The lawyers he has are too good. Grand juries and federal judges are too interested in um, getting all the information, not just for him, but in any criminal investigation. And if he thinks he's going to be able to hide the ball or other people around him think he's going to be able to hide the ball, they are dead wrong. So if there is something there, it will come out. And uh, I think we're all going to have to be a little bit more patient. He's only been in office seven months. I right. know it seems like this is dog years. Right. You know, it seems right. like seven decades at this point. Um, but you give it time. It's not going to happen in a week or a month. Um, and uh, you let the investigators do what they're doing. And I think the point at which he figured out that he could not fire Robert Mueller uh, was the point at which uh, I said to myself, you know, I think they're really going to come up with some stuff. Um, so long as Robert Mueller is on the case, I think he's in a lot of trouble. Very interesting stuff, Jennifer uh, Rubin, a columnist for the Washington Post. Thanks so much for your time, and please keep up the good work. Will do. Thanks so much, John. All right, take care. Keep in touch. That's uh, Jennifer Rubin, Washington Post, a conservative columnist, with a very interesting discussion on a variety of issues. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Make sure you check out hour number one where we review the news of the week. We will not be doing a podcast next week, but we will be returning for the Labor Day weekend. So you have that to look forward to. As always, I ask only two things of you. If you enjoyed this podcast, this hour or this particular edition of it, make sure you share it. 
via social media, Facebook, Twitter, or by word of mouth. And also, do yourself a favor, and if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.